All right, if you got your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12. Now, last week we looked at the first two letters to the churches that Jesus had John write. This week we're going to look at the second two. Now, the difference is how we're going to handle this this evening. Last week, we just kind of went through the passage. We looked at one letter, then we looked at the second letter. We looked at the, um, the city that the church was written to, or the, the church, or the city that the church existed in that was written to, and uh, kind of saw what was going on in that city and how that impacted that letter. So we went from one city to the next city. We went from Ephesus to Smyrna. Tonight, both of these letters have a lot in common. Uh, they're both written to churches uh, that are uh, um, having trouble with the culture, allowing culture to uh, impact their church, allowing culture to, to impact who they are and what they believe. Uh, both letters use an Old Testament reference uh, in the middle of it to explain the, uh, the sinfulness of the people, the way they're falling short. Remember, um, most of these letters follow a pattern of... Uh, there's a, a declaration of who Jesus Christ is. There is um, a commendation for something the church is doing well. There is a, um, a chastisement for something the church is failing in. Remember Ephesus? They were great at standing for truth, but they had forgotten to love people. Uh, then there is a, a charge for those who uh, repent, those who stand firm, and then the promise of uh, what, will, <clears throat> what will happen or, uh, to the one who conquers. So tonight, instead of looking at one church and then looking at the next church, we're going to kind of combine them. And so um, this is probably more confusing for me than y'all trying to make sure I follow my notes right, but we're going to jump from, from one church to the next church, kind of section by section, because they kind of hit the same beats. And so instead of repeating ourselves, uh, we're just going to try to cover both in each one. We'll, we'll see as we go back and forth. Um, so let's just start off looking at the cities, uh, and then we'll read the passages. So the first is written to the church in uh, Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum uh, was considered the most distinguished city in Asia. In fact, before uh, it fell to the Romans, uh, this was the capital city of uh, this Asian empire that existed before the Romans came in and overtook. It was built on a cone-shaped hill about a thousand feet high, so it was um, visible for miles away. It was a huge city. It was a uh, very uh, rich city, very wealthy city. It was also the center of worship for four of the most important pagan cults. Uh, there was a large, uh, kind of at the, at the peak of the, uh, the hill, kind of the peak of the city, uh, there was a temple to the worship of Zeus, uh, who for the Romans was considered, or the Greeks was considered their, their chief god. Uh, there was one to uh, Athene, there was one to Dionysus, who uh, Dionysus, to worship Dionysus, um, it was all about um, wine, he was the god of wine. It was all about getting drunk. It was all about uh, sexual immorality within that drunkenness. Uh, and to the god uh, Asclepius, uh, who is um, considered the god of healing, they would build these bath, 
bathhouses, and there would be people coming from miles around to go to these bathhouses for healing. And not only did that take place in the bathhouse, not only was it supposed to be a place of healing, but also homosexual activity was rampant in bathhouses at this time in the Roman government. So that's kind of uh, the worship of that area with these pagan gods. But not only that, uh, but it was the official city uh, in Asia for the imperial cult. It was the first city in Asia that was given permission to build a temple uh, to worship a living king or a living ruler. So much like some of the cities that we've seen, there's this uh, 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 imperial cult, there's this worship of the Caesars, worship of the kings, and then also not just one temple, but four major temples to four major pagan false deities uh, existed within this city. And as we talked about last week, this, this, there was no separation of church and state. Church and state were, were intertwined so that the worship of Zeus and um, Dionysus and all these others and the worship of the king or the worship of the Caesar, they tied into everyday life. They tied into the culture. They tied into to sports. You ran for your God. They tied into entertainment. They tied into your job. They tied in if you served in the military. All of this fit together that, that there was an expectation that if you were going to exist and participate in the culture around you, that you are going to participate in the worship of the emperor and these false gods. The next city that we're going to look at is um, Thyatira. Thyatira, the city... um, wasn't considered nearly as great or nearly as awesome a city. Uh, Of these seven cities, it's kind of considered kind of the lowest rung uh, of these cities when it comes to importance, when it comes to value. But what did stand out for the city of Thyatira was it had a large number of trade guilds that flourished there. So uh, like metalwork or or wool or woodwork and all these different guilds, they kind of had some of their home bases or they had large standings in this city. Now, each guild had its own patron god. And so as you operated within these guilds, as you uh, served within these guilds, or as you were a part of these guilds, as you uh, um, made your wares to be able to sell, to be able to make a living, uh, it was tied into the worship of these gods. They would uh, celebrate their deities in periodic festivals and meals. Uh, there would be expectations that if you were part of these guilds, uh, when these meals were taking place, there would be um, meat offered to these pagan gods that would have been... Uh, a part of this pagan worship, and then you were to eat of that kind of as a part of that worship. And so um, for Christians in both of these cities, these cultures from the just the, the, the social culture of um, Pergamum to the, uh, the work culture of Thyatira, there was this This inundation of pagan worship, of worshiping false gods, of worshiping emperors and men. It was was, uh, wrapped up completely in it. It was completely intertwined with the culture that these people lived in. And so it put Christians in a very awkward spot. Well, not an awkward spot, but a difficult spot. 
How do we engage in a culture when the culture is completely anti-God? Then how do we engage to work to be able to make a living? Because to deny these false gods and to, to stand for the one true God came with a lot, of, a lot of weight with it, a lot of baggage. It would cost how you did your job. It would cost how you made money. It would cost how you interacted with people and, and how you could be a part of society. They did not live in a Christian or even a, a quasi-Christian type uh, setting as we do. Uh, they lived in a place that was actively and purposefully anti-God. So that kind of sets up our picture. That kind of sets up where these two churches exist. They exist in cultures that have completely embraced ideologies that are opposite of what the Bible says. Okay. So let's do this. Let's, um, let's read verse 12 and then verse 18. Uh, these are the introductions where he talks about Jesus. Uh, and it kind of gives us that kind of um, gaze or kind of uh, looking forward to what's going to happen in these letters. We talked about how these uh, descriptions come from the vision that John had of Jesus back in chapter 1 uh, from verses 12 through 16. So let's look at verse, we'll read verse 12, then we'll read verse 18. So verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp edge to sword. Verse 18, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So the first way Jesus is described in verse 12 uh, is the the words of him who has a sharp-edged sword. What is that sharp-edged sword? This is the the Word of God. We know this from uh, seeing the vision that he had of Jesus. We know this because there are other places where God's Word is described as a sword. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 4, when it talks about the Word of God is like a a sword that cuts through bone and marrow, uh, as as, uh, Paul is listing out the the spiritual armor, uh, he talks about how the Word of God is a sword. It's kind of that only offensive weapon we have spiritually is God's Word. And so God's Word, or Jesus is described as the Word in John chapter 1. And so this Word that is coming from His mouth, it is His Word. It is the Word of God. It is the truth that He speaks. And for Jesus, um, this means He speaks truth. And so this is going to impact this church because they are dealing with a culture that has rejected truth. But it's also a picture of judgment. That God with His Word, or Jesus with His Word, has decided right from wrong. And when the time for judgment comes, His Word will speak righteousness, and His Word will speak judgment. In verse 18, it says, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. We talked about how the eyes, uh, when he saw them like fire, that it was a picture of the sovereignty of God, how, how God sees, or how Christ in this picture sees through the hearts of men. He sees past any mask that we might put up. He, he sees past any, any facades that we build. He sees past any walls that we build up to keep things hidden. He sees through to the very core of who we are. There's nothing, nothing hidden from God. And in fact, as we go on, that is explicitly mentioned. Jesus is called the one um, who looks and searches the hearts of men. And the feet burnished with bronze, we talked about the strength. That that was uh, the the strength and the purity of who Jesus was uh, or who Jesus is. 
And so as he introduces Jesus to the church of Thyatira, he discusses him or lays him out as this, uh, this God who can see past our actions, who can see our hearts. We might fool other people. We might hide from other people. Uh, we might hide our actions or intentions from other people, but we cannot from God. And also as the one who is stable enough, who is strong enough to uphold his church. That even if the culture rejects you, Jesus is strong enough to hold you up. Okay, so now let's get to the letters. Let's start off, we'll read the letter to the church of Pergamum. Uh, then we'll kind of talk about part of it. Then we'll read the Thyatira. We'll talk about part of it. Then we'll kind of start jumping back and forth. All right, starting verse 13 through verse 17. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also um, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, as John writes this letter, John does not pull any punches. So he starts off giving them their commendation. Hey, here's what uh, uh, I commend you for. Here's what you are doing good. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, there's two things that are... The first thing that stands out to me in that verse is that two times he refers to this city, Pergamum. Remember, there's these four uh, temples, places of worship to these four main deities. There's, this is the first place where emperor worship was allowed or a temple for emperor worship was built in Asia. And he calls this twice. Once he calls it Satan's throne and once he calls it where Satan dwells. As John writes, he pulls no punches talking about the city that these Christians exist in. They live in a rough place spiritually. Maybe financially, maybe it's doing good. Maybe job-wise, everyone's working. Maybe it's a wealthy city. But when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to righteousness and unrighteousness, morality and immorality, John call, or, excuse me, Jesus calls this the place where Satan dwells, where Satan has his throne. This is a spiritually dark place. This is a spiritually depraved place. And in this context, this church, they stand firm. Even when persecution comes, even when Antipas, who was a believer in this place, even when he is killed and martyred for his faith, this church has stood firm. They did what they were supposed to do. They stood how God had called them to stand. Now, it can be easy sometimes to stand for God when, when everything is going well. When you, live in a, when you live in a place like Arkansas, when you live in a place like, like Corning where, where there is no uh, um, 
persecution. Uh, maybe there's, there's struggles that people have, but, but for the most part, I don't know that anyone would call Corning uh, the place where Satan's throne is or the place where Satan dwells. Yet you look at this city and it is so dark with pagan uh, idolatry. It is so dark in their actions. It's so dark in their perversions. It's so dark in their false worship that God says, Jesus says, this is where Satan lives. You live in Satan's house. That is a difficult place to exist in. And he commends them. He says, look, you might live in, in, the, in the darkest place spiritually in the world. And I commend you strongly for standing for truth. Even when persecution comes, even when martyrdom comes, you've stood firm in maybe the darkest place in creation. So that's the commendation for the church of Pergamum. Now let's look at the church of Thyatira. Let's read verses 19 through 29. This is the longest letter that uh, Jesus writes to these churches. Verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your letter, latter works exceeded the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule with them, uh, he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And he who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so the commendation for the church in Thyatira. It's, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. His commendation for them is their consistency and their maturity. Look, you're faithful in your love. You're faithful in your works. You endure. You persevere. This is a good thing. You stand against, uh, um, or you're standing in a place where your culture is, is, is greatly moving farther and farther from God. They are greatly engrossed in this, this pagan idolatry. And yet you stand firm in your faith. You are, you are consistent in your faith. And not only that, but there's maturity. He says, your latter works uh, exceed the first. Or your latter works exceed those that um, exceed the first. That, that how you're doing now, your obedience, your love, uh, your service to God, it is greater than when you started. And that's the goal, right? The goal is uh, that we have matured past the point than when we first became a Christian. That our lives look different now than they did when we first accepted Christ. And so he says, look, as a commendation, you as a church, you have been consistent. You as a church, you have, have moved forward. You have a church, you have matured in your faith. 
So he commends both churches for standing in places that, that are uh, idolatrous, and standing in places that are uh, blatantly anti-God. But then he gets into what he has against the churches. And they're both similar. Because both of them, they don't affect necessarily the whole church. They, they, they affect just parts of the churches, smaller groups that have allowed false teachers to begin to infiltrate. Now this morning, remember, we talked about false teachers and the danger of false doctrine, the danger of false teachers, and why they are so dangerous. And here, uh, Jesus, through John, kind of continues that idea that we looked at this morning. And when he talks about these false teachers that, that have been allowed to creep into the church, he uses two Old Testament references to describe them. So let's start with the one in Pergamum. Look in verse uh, 14. But I have a few things against you. You have let, or you have some there, so this is not the whole church, but this is a some. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what does that mean? The, you have some who follow the, the cult of Balaam or the teaching of Balaam. Now, more than likely, there was not a, a cult of Balaam or a teaching of Balaam in this place. This is a reference to the Old Testament story of Balaam and Balak. Now, if you don't remember that, here's kind of a recap. Balaam was a prophet, uh, a God-ordained prophet. And yet Balak was a king who did not like the Israelites. This is when the Israelites were uh, in the wilderness and um, Balak said to, or Balak basically bought Balaam and said, I want you to go and curse the Israelites. Um, Go and and proclaim a curse on them uh, so that, that that they will be, they will die, they'll get sick, something bad will happen to them. And every time he went to go proclaim a curse, he ended up proclaiming a blessing. God would, would, would intercede and he could only proclaim blessings on Israel. And so when that would not work, he went to Balak and he explained to him another way to uh, entrap the Israelites or another way to cause damage to the Israelites. Listen to uh, Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 2, and then Numbers 31, verse 16. It says this. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So it says when they lived in this region, they allowed the people, they allowed the culture around them to have impact in their life, and it led them to idolatry, and it led them to sexual immorality. The verse, Numbers 31.16 tells us this, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. 
Balaam had given them the advice, hey, look, I can't proclaim a wrath or a a curse against the Israelites. God's not allowing it. So what you do is you surround them. Instead of attacking them, you befriend them. You act subversively to them. And then instead of kind of this, this big thing, you kind of come in secretly in their lives, gain influence and trust, and then you draw them into idolatry. And that was Israel's flaw throughout their entire existence as a nation of God, is they would allow other nations with their false gods to impact them, and they would slowly leave God and start to embrace the worship practices of these false gods, which all revolved around worshiping false idols, offering sacrifices, oftentimes offering child sacrifices, and their worship for the majority all revolved around sexuality and sexual immorality. And so Jesus writes this letter to the church and he says, you've allowed, or there are some of you who've embraced this ideology. The same thing that happened with Balaam, where they began to engage sexual morality and worship false idols. You've allowed that to seep into your church. You've allowed some to embrace the culture to the point where they are worshiping the same way the culture worships. They are doing the exact same things the culture does. They say they're still Christian, but their actions, their actions, activity looks nothing like God, and it looks just like this pagan culture that is the the throne of Satan. And then his charge against the church in Thyatira is, is very similar. He says this in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the heart and mind, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So very similar. There was this false teacher. Maybe her name was Jezebel, maybe not. Maybe they just used this name to tie us into the Old Testament story of Jezebel. But there was this false teacher, this this lady going around having impact in some of the people's life in this church. And she's called Jezebel, which takes us back to the story of um, uh, King Ahab, who had married Jezebel. And she then led the nation of Israel into the worship of the bells. Let me read you this passage. In 1 Kings chapter 16, it says this, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He was one of the kings, these these bad kings. He was the king when, when Elisha had the, or Elijah was on the, uh, the, the Mount Carmel with the, the prophets of Baal. Uh, this is what's going on during this time. Uh, Ahab is the king during this time when that, uh, that, that those years of drought had been. Uh, Jezebel, after uh, this, the, the story of Ahab on the mountain with the, uh, the prophets of Baal, uh, she promises or pledges to have Elijah killed. But anyway, here's the story. He um, says that he had done evil or wicked in God's sight more than all who were before him. It says, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served the Baal and worshipped him. 
He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Uh, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. So this reference to Jezebel, this reference to this lady that, that... married the king of Israel. Now, he was already bad before he married her, but his marriage to her helped lead the nation of Israel into Baal worship, into idolatry, to worship of Baal and setting up an Asherah pole. Worshiping Baal with the Asherah pole, it is all sexual immorality. All of it is is worshiping God with with temple prostitutes and um, just absolute perversion. And they're saying to this church in Thyatira, you're allowing this false teacher to come in, this this prophetess, this false prophetess, Jezebel, and she is having this negative impact on your church. There are some in your church, there are some in the city who are Christians who have bought into this and they are getting dragged into the sin and the perversion of the culture around them. They are allowing culture to dictate who they are rather than God to be the one that dictates who they are. And he says that he's given her time to repent. She has refused. He's giving uh, those who follow her time to repent. And if they do not, then he will come with judgment. He will come with those eyes that, that, that seek the hearts of men, that, that, that see the actions and the thoughts of men, that, that, that permeate them and know right from wrong, good from bad. So we see so far their cities are kind of similar. Uh, Their commendations are very similar. Uh, The charges that God has or that Christ has against them are very similar. They are churches that have allowed the culture to begin to dictate who they are and what they believe rather than allowing Jesus Christ and His Word to dictate who they are and what they believe. Now remember... With Jesus, you have the, the, the word of the, the sword coming out of his mouth as the word. So one of the things that we remember from that or we take with that is we are to establish our life. We are to establish our belief. We are to establish our faith on God's word. But we also saw in there when he says, If they do not repent, then he will come with the sword of his word from his mouth. And that's a picture that he will declare righteousness and unrighteousness. And he will declare judgment and justice on those who have rejected him. With the... um, with the church of Thyatira, we saw those, those eyes, those burning eyes that, that see, that search the hearts of men. And while there might have been some of that church, maybe they hid it from other people. Maybe they were hiding it pretty well. No one else saw what they were doing. Jesus saw. He saw to the very core of who they were. Now, as he continues on in both of these letters, he he understands this is a small part or a portion of the church. It is not all of the church. And he references those in Thyatira directly. He says, look, for those who have not bought into this, this doesn't refer to you. I'm not adding more burden onto you. This is those who have rejected uh, truth. Those who have allowed culture to take preeminence over truth. Now, I know it might be easy for us to sit back and say, well, this doesn't, or how does this pertain to us? We don't do this, do we? Uh, uh, Well, one, we all struggle with allowing culture to dictate what is good, what is right in our life, what is valuable, what is true. But also, I believe in the next five to ten years, we're going to see a big war in the church 
When it comes to culture, let me just illustrate it with this. This past summer at the Southern Baptist Convention, we are a Southern Baptist church. The Southern Baptist Convention is where uh, Southern Baptist churches uh, have the right to send delegates. They come in, uh, different things are discussed, different resolutions are made, different things are voted for. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention as a group, if the, the, if the vote passes, they accept it. If it doesn't, they do not. Now, once again, anything that the Southern Baptist Convention accepts uh, it has no authority over the churches. All Southern Baptist churches are autonomous, meaning we, we rule or we govern ourselves. Uh, we don't have a, a hierarchy of other organizations or other groups that govern us or dictate who we are or how we live or, or how we operate as a church. Um, but they, so they make statements of belief. And this past summer, there was a resolution that passed that, that declared Jesus or declared Scripture as our greatest authority, which it is. But at the same time, let me read it. I wrote it down. Um, okay. It says that critical race theory and intersectionality uh, should be employed as analytical tools for Scripture. Now, it's to be subordinate to Scripture, but they, they said that these two things are, uh, are tools that we can use to help us interpret and understand Scripture. So, so we're on the same page. What is intersectionality and what is cultural or uh, um, a critical race theory? Intersectionality is this. It's a concept. Intersectionality deals with the cumulative social, uh, socius, excuse me, societal effects of systematic discrimination on people who belong to more or one disadvantaged group. So here's what intersectionality does. Intersectionality takes a whole different kind of listing of people. They, they group people into all these different groups. And they say some of these groups are, uh, are or have always been discriminated against. So they get like a, uh, a score of like a five. And then some groups are never discriminated against, so they get a score of like a zero. And so intersectionality means that your voice has more value, more importance based on your intersectionality score. So if you are a woman then you automatically get a, an intersectionality score of five because women have been oppressed at, in our nation. If you are a, a woman of color, then you get an intersectionality score of ten because uh, people of color and women of color are, are, and women have been oppressed in our society. If you are a LGBTQ uh, person plus a person of color plus a woman, then your uh, score automatically jumps up to 10, 15, 20, whatever it might be so that means that your voice, you have more value as a person because you are a group or you have more, you are, you are a participant, I guess, in multiple groups of people who have been oppressed. So therefore, you have more worth, your voice has more uh, value. Those who are um, not oppressed... White people. White people have no oppression, so white people have no intersectionality score. Men. Men have never been oppressed in America. This is their argument. So men have no uh, intersectionality score. Same with straight men. Same with Christians. And so um, white Christian 
basically white Christian people have no value in the society when it comes to intersectionality. It exalts this kind of made-up, make-belief standard or staggeredness of, of what is oppression to give people value. And so the Southern Baptist Convention voted to affirm that this idea of intersectionality is valuable when it comes to studying Scripture. Now, I would argue that it is completely unbiblical. That Jesus says, or, or John, or Paul writes through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans, that in Christ there is neither uh, male nor female, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, uh, Greek or slave or, or Scythian, uh, that, that there is equality in Christ. And so it has no place in the church. Yet the Southern Baptist Convention, because of those who embrace social justice, and social justice, though it sounds good, uh, social justice is... Let me find where it's at in my notes. Social justice is the concept that um, describes the movement of... Um, Human rights and equality uh, involved in a greater degree of economic uh, dispersion. Um, so once again, if you, social justice is simply, look, if you have money and you're not oppressed, then you should give your money to people who are oppressed. It, it's, it's, it's communism, it's socialism, it's, it's unbiblical, it's taking from others to give to other people, it's theft, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with the Bible. But these ideas are being embraced by some within the Southern Baptist Convention. Critical race theory. Uh, critical race theory is seen or is, um, is seen either as oppressed or an oppressor, uh, depending on their, each individual, seen either as an oppressed or an oppressor, depending on their race, class, gender, or sexuality, uh, and a number of other categories. The oppressed groups are subjugated by, not by physical force, uh, but through, um, through use of power. So critical race theory says, once again, it goes back to that idea of oppression. All of these people have been oppressed, so therefore they have more righteousness, they have more value uh, than those who have historically been the oppressors or or those who have had power, not even those who are oppressors, but those who have had power. And so these ideas are blatantly unbiblical. These ideas are blatantly unchristian. And yet the Southern Baptist Convention voted to say, yes, these should be subordinate to Scripture. Scripture still comes first, but these tools are valuable. There have been churches who have already left the Southern Baptist Convention because of this statement, because of this vote. And the problem with it is... is just like these churches, they are cowering down to culture. Culture says this is right, this is good. Culture says intersectionality is value, that people should have more value and more worth and a greater voice because of their skin color or because of their uh, gender identity or because of their sexuality. They should have more simply because they exist as a person of color or homosexual uh, than people who do not. And these ideas are completely unbiblical, unscriptural, yet as a convention, uh, it was voted, it was passed, that this has value as we study God's Word. It's a dangerous place. It's the, it's the very top of a very slippery slope. And so we need to understand over the next five to ten years as a church, the church in America is going to be confronted with this culture war. The church in America is going to be confronted with this war that says, as the church, are you going to stand for what is 
What is true? What is God's Word? And if you do, you'll be called a racist, a homophobe, a bigot, and you will be shouted down by those who embrace this intersectionality. Will you stand even if persecution comes? Or are you going to embrace the culture so that you can live more comfortably as a Christian? Understand, these ideas that, that are nothing new, Jesus calls these cultures the, the, the throne of Satan. And so as they are embracing these cultures around them, they're embracing things that, that are not just anti-God, they are pro-Satan. Pro in the same way, we have to be careful as a church and as believers that we are not embracing a culture that is not just anti-God, but is pro the enemy. All right, we need to hurry up. Okay, um, let's look at how he closes with the church in Pergamum. Look at verse 16. He calls for repentance. Therefore, repent. If not, I will soon come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Once again, this is to those who have uh, rejected or those who have embraced this false teaching. Um, we've talked about this a ton before that, that um, Jesus loves us so much. If we are his children, he's not going to allow us to exist in sin. He is going to uh, discipline us. That The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. As we read God's word, we can be, if there is sin in our life that we have not confessed, have not dealt with, or are not dealing with, that God will convict us of our sin uh, through his word, that God will do whatever he has to do to move us to himself. So with Ephesus, we saw that when that church refuses, or excuse me, when that church does not love, that they, they cease to exist as a church. He says, I will remove your lampstand. Here he says, I'm going to come and make war with those who do not repent. That God is going to come, or Jesus is going to come. He's going to do whatever it takes to draw his people back to himself, even if it means doing battle with them to bring them to a place of repentance. He says, He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written upon the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, the idea of hidden manna, this is God's provision. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, uh, God provided for them with the quail and with the manna. It was God's provision. Remember, this is a town, this is a city that they live in where if they completely embrace their Christianity and they completely stand against the idolatry of their culture, they will be cast aside. They will be viewed as outsiders. They will be viewed as enemies of the state. They will not be allowed to participate in a whole lot of the culture of the town that they live in or the lifestyle, not even the lifestyle, but even just existing and buying things in the marketplace and existing with different jobs. It will not be possible. And so the hidden man is a reminder that though you may be rejected by the world, know that God will provide for you. God can provide for you, and God provides for His people. And the idea of the white rock or the white stone, uh, in this time, those were used as, as markers. That if the, um, the government was throwing a party or throwing some kind of celebration, uh, these would be passed out. And this is how you got into the gates. This is how you got into the party. This is how you got into the, uh, the meal is with this. This was your ticket to get in. And so those who persevere, those who conquer, they trust God's provision. They trust that He will provide. But they are also given this stone, this promise of those 
those who are faithful to God, those who place their faith in God and they live their faith out, that we have that promise of eternity in Him. Once again, reminding us that this world is temporary. The persecutions and struggles that we might have in this world are temporary. And yet God has promised us something far greater. And then let's close it out with the church in Thyatira. Verse 24. But the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, uh, who have not learned uh, what they call the deep, th- what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. So remember, this whole judgment that he's saying is not to the entire church, but it's to those uh, within that church who have embraced that. Now let me just say this too. While the call there might be against those who have embraced that, there is still a responsibility for the rest of the church to stand for truth, even in those others' lives. If someone were to um, kind of make their way into our church, uh, tear among the wheat, so to speak, uh, and began to, maybe they came into a Sunday school class, and they began to, uh, to kind of present a false gospel or a false truth or false doctrine in that Sunday school class. Or maybe they tried to, to, to get some kind of place of authority where they began to, um, to introduce false truth within the church, then we as the rest of the church have a responsibility to call that out. We have a responsibility to say, no, that will not be allowed in here. Uh, My friend that's in South Dakota, Stephan, planning a church they do a lot of block parties to, to try to reach their community. And they were doing one while we were up there helping them. And uh, this couple was there. Um, and he told me, look, this couple's been here several times. Uh, they come in and they're telling people that, um, that Jesus is good. But if you really want to be saved, you also have to be a good person. You've got to follow all these rules. Um, and so I was sitting there when he walked over and he told them as nicely as he possibly could, you are not welcomed here because you are false teachers. We have a responsibility to our church. We have a responsibility to each other to stand for truth. That when false teaching is presented, that we stand with the Word of God and push back against it so that we do not become these churches. Okay. Um, verse 25. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, the morning star that is Christ, and he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here is the promise that as we are joint heirs with Christ, if we err with him, if we uh, persevere with him, then we will also reign with him. This is the promise that while now you might be under the foot, there will come a time when with Christ you will reign in authority. That God God, uh, and we'll get to this as we get more towards the end of the book of Revelation, but there's a promise where, uh, where those who come with Christ or those who are with Christ uh, during that thousand year... Um, 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 my mind just went blank. But during, during the thousand year millennium, the, the millennial reign of Christ, uh, when there are still those who exist on the earth who, uh, who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that there's been a promise where we reign with Christ. So this is fulfilling that promise. Once again, looking forward to the future. Though you are oppressed right now as believers, understand there will come a time where there is 
life. There will come a time where there is a promise where you will not be underfoot, but in grace and in love as a joint heir with Christ, subordinate to Him, you are allowed to reign with Him. Understanding that the temporary struggles of this world are just that, temporary. So don't let culture dictate who you are or what you believe. Stand for what is true. Um, it's 7 o'clock, so let me just pray to close us out. And as I pray, what I want us to pray about tonight is let's just pray um, that God would reaffirm to us what is true as individuals and as a church, and that we would make sure that as individuals and as a church that we are standing for truth, that we are not allowing culture to dictate who we are, but we are allowing God and His Word to decide what is true, what is right, and what is good. Let's pray.